We marched on through the drizzle until we reached Archie's street. I was about to ask him which house was his, but it was easy to spot. The one that was on fire. There was already a good crowd of people on the far side of the street, watching the furious blaze. Even from that safe distance, we could feel the incredible heat and fury. It can't be a coincidence, can it, Doctor? No, Zoe. I think they must have come looking for Archie. Uh, and either this happened by mistake, or they're rather cross. I turned to Archie, but he wasn't listening. Instead, he swore at the communications device in his hand. He couldn't get hold of his mum. You don't think, I started to say, but Jamie was already ahead of me, and before we could stop him, he ran into the burning house. He saved Archie's mum, carried her body out into the street, handed it to the waiting paramedics, and then Jamie collapsed. The machines kept him breathing at a regular rate. The doctor had gone with the nurses to fill in the various forms. Archie was off wherever they'd got his mum. She'd breathed in lots of smoke. But Jamie had shielded her from whatever had given him the massive electric shock. The burn on his chest was almost the shape of a hand. Unconscious in the hospital bed, he didn't look peaceful, just empty. Like he'd left his body behind, and us. I held his hand, watching the display screen as it monitored his heart. The machine breathing for him. How strange that even we can be reduced to ones and zeros, the language of computers. We use strings of ones and zeros to stand for letters and words. We can use them to build pictures, models in three or more dimensions, create worlds beyond our own ability to imagine them. In the year since Turing's first room-sized computers, all that's really changed is the complexity of those strings of numbers and the speed at which they're processed. That was driven by need. Military systems, banking, security, all depended on long, complex codes to keep their secrets safe. And then Feynman glibly suggested a way to make computers even faster. There's this thing called superposition. A nucleus at the heart of an atom, so tiny it's barely observable. It's radioactive, but at that nanoscale, physics starts getting weird. The nucleus doesn't exist in a certain way. It's both decayed and undecayed at the same time a mix of probabilities rather than a definite thing. That is, until we try to measure it. It only becomes one thing or the other when we impose certainty on it. There's a classic thought experiment that shows how weird this is. You put a cat in a box with this radioactive nucleus and you close the lid. If the nucleus decays, the cat will be poisoned. But until we measure it, the nucleus is both decayed and undecayed at the same time. So until you open the lid, the cat is both dead and alive. And that's ridiculous, isn't it? But I looked at Jamie, lying unconscious beside me, the machines breathing for him. And it struck me that that wasn't so different, that he was alive and dead at the same time. It might be weird, but superimposition is real. We've found particles that exist in more than one state at once. 
photons, beryllium ions, and now these people were working out how to do it with computers. Qubits that are ones and zeros at the same time. The speed and complexity that would allow, it would be such a leap forward. Were the creatures trying to stop that advance? I already knew from my own time that we created Feynman computers. Or was that the point? Is time uncertain? And stepping out of the TARDIS is like opening the lid on the cat. All futures exist at once until we impose one over another and overwrite everything I know. If the creature succeeded, I wouldn't even be born. And yet here I was, two states at once. Hours later, Archie appeared at the door. His mum was sleeping. He'd come to look in on Jamie. I tried to tell him what the doctors had said, that we'd have to wait and see, but it only came out as a sob. He held me, told me everything would be all right. I wanted to believe him. Then the doctor cleared his throat. Archie let me go and we smiled at the doctor, embarrassed. He pretended he hadn't seen and quickly checked on Jamie. Satisfied, he turned on Archie. You um, threw water at the creatures to hurt them. Archie's shoulders sagged. I thought they were going to kill us. The doctor's eyes twinkled brightly. But don't you see? Last night, when they attacked me... Of course! It was raining! But the rain didn't hurt them! Archie had an idea. Was it me splashing water on the floor? The puddle touched the machine, made some kind of connection. The doctor considered. I think the only answer can be that they're more vulnerable to connections when they're near the machine. Archie shook his head. Why haven't they attacked again? I mean, they knew where I lived. They must know where we are. I think they can see what we're doing and watch for our next move, said the doctor. And what is our next move? Isn't it obvious? If we're going to face them again, there's only one place it should be. We go back to your machine. Oh, what is it? My head. The more I probe into what I remember, the more it's like hot needles through my brain. Because we're getting somewhere. You're doing so well. I don't feel well. I assume if I found what you're looking for, you would let me stop. We're almost there. You know that? Or are you biased? It's a sign of a faulty experiment when you know the outcome you want. But you're remembering. And I'm suffering for it. The more I uncover, the worse it gets. Like my own brain is trying to stop me. Oh. What? Jen. Maybe there's a good reason I don't remember. There's something it's not safe to know. You don't believe that. You're a scientist. Knowledge is everything. Knowledge can be abused. The company used my work to develop new weapons. Is that what they'll do? with what I might tell them now. Maybe we should stop. What? Perhaps it's better that what I know dies with me. Don't feel bad, it's my decision. I'd rather not die with a headache. It's not just you. What? They got you. Jen. I didn't want to tell you. I thought it might bias your evidence. Your children. Funny coincidence. 
they made it to the elite program. Taken the day before yesterday. But if you bring the program down, you could get them back. And if we fail? If they can dismiss your evidence? Then I lose them for good. You submitted the file. K1191. They can bury the evidence. But if you had something of value, they would have to listen. That's why you're pushing me. What did you put in the water? Aspirin. But the headaches... You hear that? It's not recycling the air. Focused Morgan Ray. It's what they use in dementia. Helps bridge the implicit and explicit memory. But side effects include headache. You could have asked. I'd have helped you. I think I know that now, but after the story you told me before... I lied. I was playing it ruthless and tough. And I was suckered in. I'm sorry. You were thinking of your children. Please, Zoe. We have to stop them. We've only got a few minutes, and I think we're nearly there. You're right. It's something you've seen. Something the company can't let slip through their fingers. You and the Doctor and Archie. Heading back to the machine. Yes, I think... Remember what you were feeling? Fear. About telling Archie what I felt for him. He might have shared your feelings. Then it would have been harder. When I lost him for good. We tiptoed over the smooth concrete floor, and yet our footsteps squelched loudly in the darkness. The doctor had made us wear extra layers of rubber tied around our shoes. Now there was only the machine. It loomed ahead of us in the eerie moonlight. The high windows meant the shadows were long and unreal. We made our way towards it, expecting the creatures to leap out at us at any moment. They did not come. So the doctor examined the Feynman computer. He could barely keep himself from stroking it. I saw the delight in his eyes. He could be so sentimental about old technology. I kept close to pull him back if he got too close to the gap between the two sides. Oh, they've done remarkably well. But I wonder why they've not got it working. It's obvious. The coils aren't segmented, and it doesn't have a base cord. So they must have problems with phase. The doctor stroked a finger over his lip. I expect they find it gets entangled. Archie tried to keep up. So it doesn't work? Not in the way it's meant to? I shook my head. They probably get it to run simple numbers, but not very fast. Entanglement at this scale would eat up a lot of energy. And then the thought struck me. So where does that energy go? The doctor considered the problem. Then a wry smile played across his features. And before I could stop him, he dashed out a hand and waggled his fingers in the gap. He didn't stand back or shield his eyes as the machine started to glow with blue and purple light, all the more dazzling in the moonlit darkness. The doctor beamed and put his arms out, as if warming himself in the glow. I wanted to be like him, cool and calm and certain. 
but the electric charge in the air made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. The ginger whiff in the air, an echo of the pain I'd felt when I'd had the electric shock. And then they were there, the creatures. Thick, stocky limbs coalescing from the light. They reached their arms out to the doctor, and he nodded like he understood. You want to make contact, he said. The moment you touch us, it earths the connection, sends you back where you come from. So you haven't been able to fix what's going wrong. What? They're trying to help us? The doctor shrugged. They're trying to stop the side effect of the machine. The energy has to go somewhere, and we've not seen it here. Of course! The machine makes a hole in space-time. That's what the TARDIS smashed into. We're lucky we're not all falling away into the future or past, said the Doctor. He nodded at the creature. But you know how to fix it, don't you? And you've been trying to tell us. And when you reached out to poor Meg... He tailed off. I continued. After she died, the scientists stopped using the machine. So you watched and waited until we started asking questions at the wake. And then you tried to reach the doctor. But my wellies stopped me being toasted. They probably let me do this. And he stepped forward to touch the creature. The energy lit up his body, his skin blazing purple-blue, his clothes steamed, his hair stood on end, and yet he gazed calmly at the creature. Yes, you know how to fix it. Just need me to hear. And then his brow furrowed in confusion. No, you don't need my help with the machine. Just to make the connection, so that... His words tailed off as he stared in wonder into the gap between the two sides of the machine, at the form coalescing out of the light. A slighter shape than the creature's. Taller, more human. She stepped from the light, and moved swiftly to one of the cuboid sides of the machine. A panel popped open when she touched it lightly. She reached inside and worked a series of controls. The light began to fade. The creatures stepped back into the gap, but they were already on their way. The doctor bowed curtly. The creatures bowed back, and they were gone. There was silence but for the doctor trying to pat down the mess of his hair and Archie laughing in wonder as he held on to Meg. Dead and alive at the same time. It was ridiculous. Yet there she was, standing in front of us. And it was breaking my heart. The doctor took my arm and led me gently away. How are you feeling? Hey. What, what happened? You fainted. I brought you this. Oh, my head. Then take the aspirin. Thanks. How long was I out? Not long. Gave me time to check on some of what you said. Yes, Archie grew up in the house next to Meg and she died in testing room four at Kodacek Research, which was used for a classified project. Well, that's not definitive proof. I could have read the same documents you did. 
That's a more likely explanation than... We don't need to prove that you went back in time, just that you saw something of value. What did I see that you can use? The machine. You remember it? Mm. Yes. Two tall cuboids with a space in between. Archie paralysed in the gap. What was the machine for? Um, it was a Feynman computer, or that's what they hoped it would be. An early model before they worked out the mechanics. The coils weren't segmented, and I didn't see a base cord. So they must have had problems with phase. But that's hardly a value. We've had Feynman computers for decades. What do you want to know? I can't tell you what we're looking for. They'll say I guided you. You need to find it yourself. Is it something I'd have known was important at the time? Don't strain yourself. Let's continue with the story, then it will come back. Okay. Are you sure this is just aspirin? I promise. Now, the creatures touched Meg and their energy killed her. So how did you survive? I didn't. I'm a ghost. That's not helping. Oh. Well, isn't it obvious? I lay on the cold concrete floor. My whole body ached, all one enormous bruise. When I opened my eyes, the light was searing. Irregular blobs of purple and blue danced across my sight. But I was still in the lab, a short distance from the prototype Feynman computer. Archie crouched over me, the blood drained from his face. As I sat up, he passed me a plastic cup of water. I saw that his hand was shaking. It's okay. They're gone now, I told him. He nodded, wide-eyed. They were aliens. They were aliens, I agreed. And they exploded. You exploded them. There were scraps of substance, like scrambled egg, littered all over the floor where the creatures had been standing. But the creatures hadn't exploded. I gestured down to my sensible shoes. Steam curled softly from them. Must have rubber soles. That's why the doctor insisted I wore them. They're made of something safe. But it proves what he must have suspected. The creatures are made of electricity or use it to travel about. And we can disrupt the connection. So we can fight them, said Archie. I should have noticed his tone. The creatures had killed the girl he loved. Of course he wanted revenge. But I was sore and weary from the shock. And also, I'd been brought up in emotionless logic. I wasn't good at picking up on normal human behaviour. I handed back the cup of water and got unsteadily to my feet. I felt a bit woozy, and there was a whiff of ginger in the air, the same stink as when the creatures had attacked us the night before. The computer showed no sign of damage. The creatures hadn't touched it. I could still see no controls. Perhaps they operate it remotely. Or, said Archie, it comes on when you walk through here. Before I could stop him, he raised his free hand to show me, and the tips of his fingers brushed the gap between the two tall cuboids. I grabbed his arm, pulled him back from the machine as it started to glow with blue and purple light. We fell back, and he still had the plastic cup in his hand. Water sloshed over the side, splotching down on the smooth concrete floor. He grinned sheepishly at me. 
thought I splashed the machine. Once spilled tea on a tablet and... Two creatures were forming in front of us. Come on! But as we turned to run, there were two more creatures behind us. They reached out their stocky, glowing arms. You know what would happen if you touch me? But they kept on towards us. We turned. One of the creatures had stepped on the splash of water on the floor. Its whole body fizzed, the light from its body flickering. The creature let out a howl. It's in pain. And that's when Archie threw the rest of the water. It writhed in agony where it stood, shrieking in a voice like a child. A second creature went to its aid, but the moment they touched, a connection was made. Both creatures writhed and flickered in pain. Behind us, the other two creatures dared not get any closer. I saw them turn to one another almost comically, not sure what to do. Then they raised their muscular arms above their heads. There was a sudden whiff of ginger. And then they were all gone. Scraps of scrambled egg fluttered through the air where they'd stood, plopping lightly on the ground. Archie grinned at me. Once got a shot from a plug because I have wet hands. But I was horrified by what he'd done. The pain the creatures had been in, that awful sound they'd made. Archie must have seen my expression. They killed Meg, he told me. They would have killed us as well. I know! But now we won't find out who they are. Archie nodded. I knew I'd hurt him. Hadn't he just saved my life? I didn't know how to make him understand. How would the doctor have put it? There are creatures and people that need to be fought, but we only fight if we have to. Archie was eager to make things right with me. If I put my hand in the gap again, he said, we might bring them back didn't want to risk it. We'd caused the creatures pain, so how would they respond? Besides, we'd already been gone a long time. We should get back to the doctor. I'm surprised that I ran away. I could see Archie wanted to fight and we had nothing to fight with. I might not have survived a second electric shock. And Archie wasn't wearing the same special shoes. I'm surprised at your concern that they were hurt. Not the cold, callous professional your colleagues speak of. Maybe I've changed as I've got older. Or they've not told the truth. Or you haven't. The last story you told me was about how you helped an alien to kidnap human children. That's not quite what I said. But you can see that it's inconsistent. As a scientist, you worry if there's no inconsistency. You want a margin of error. Bronowski's axiom, the choice between science or certainty. You're saying your evidence is more reliable because it's inconsistent. I can't see that convincing the company. It's not my evidence, it's me, anyone. People are inconsistent. We do the unexpected, buck the trend, or we have a bad day. But you were brought up to be logical. The elite program. I am being logical. People aren't machines. We're biased, subjective. You're a scientist. Science is all about inconsistencies, 
about evidence that falsifies theory. The ancients thought Earth was the centre of the universe, the heavenly bodies passing round us in a scheme of perfect circles. Then Galileo looked through a telescope and saw Jupiter had moons. How could everything be going round us if some things went round Jupiter? It was inconsistent. So we came up with a new model. The Earth goes round the Sun. And not in perfect circles. Newton worked out the laws of gravity. But there were still inconsistencies. Mercury doesn't move round the Sun in the way he predicted. Until Einstein worked out why. Another new model. Another advance. Because the inconsistencies are the way we find the truth. You told me history wasn't your subject. I'm another example. But you're the one being inconsistent. Because we all are. Even with total recall, we embellish our memories in hindsight, altering the facts to fit the story. So in my work, I always check I've remembered details correctly. If I don't doubt myself, I make mistakes. It's the core of everything I do. I still don't see how that helps our case. Yet I was so certain that I'd never travelled in time. Ten minutes! Ten minutes till what? Oh. We need to find out what this is. What could make you forget? But to do that, we have to buy ourselves more time. I know it hurts, but you need to go on with the story. Okay. We left the lab and hurried back to meet the doctor and Jamie, and the scientists. There were two of them, Griff and Lily. More slick PR than research staff. Archie and I getting lost simply wasn't on message. We said we'd been looking for Luz. Archie was good at playing along to my lead. The two of us made a good team. And because the sonic screwdriver had let us through their locked doors without setting off any alarms, Griff and Lily believed us. They gave us a cursory tour of a shared office and a library, the places, they said, where Meg had worked. Her colleagues looked up from their terminals to acknowledge us. But when the doctor asked some questions, it was Griff and Lily who answered. Or rather, dodged nimbly round telling us anything of substance. We weren't shown the Feynman computer. Then they gave Archie a cardboard box of Meg's few possessions. He started to look through it and found a framed photograph of Meg and another young man. I saw the way that cut through him, but didn't know what to say. The worst thing is, I was glad. Then we left Kodacek Research and took the bus back into town. Whispering so the old ladies on the bus wouldn't hear us, we told the Doctor and Jamie what we'd found. The Doctor didn't seem concerned that Jamie had thrown water at the creatures, but he did note sadly that Archie referred to them as monsters. We made our way back towards Archie's parents' house, discussing our next move. We still had to know what the creatures wanted with the computer. I, um, I remember Alan and his lot with the first computers. Slow, clunky things as big as a room and all driven by valves. The valves would glow hot, which attracted moths, who then clogged up the workings. That's why we speak of computers having bugs. And your new machine is the same. Zoe said it glowed blue and purple. That's what brings the beasties. I think he meant it as a joke, and was a bit surprised to see me and the doctor considering the idea. Well, there you are then. 
he said to Archie. This science isn't so hard. Archie shook his head. Look, sorry, what is it they've actually made? A Feynman computer, if they can get it to work. OK, sure. But what is a Feynman computer? Oh, it's a quantum computer processing superimposed qubits. Archie and Jamie stared dumbfoundedly back at me. I wasn't sure where to start. They were both from a time in history when the simplest calculations would be met by a round of applause. I turned to the doctor for help. He smiled kindly. Let's get to Archie's house and out of the rain. Then I'll try to explain. The next morning, Jamie was up and pestering the nurses. We got him back to the TARDIS and were soon on our way. Jamie and the doctor were kind, told me I'd soon forget Archie. And it turns out they were right. Can you turn the machine off now? Oh, thank you. How did they explain to Meg's family and friends that she wasn't dead? She was dead. They'd identified her body, had a funeral. But she was also alive. Then how? I don't know. We didn't stay to find out. Maybe your files can tell me. They paid a small fee to correct the register of deaths. There you go. Meg and Archie got married. If she'd been watching Archie, seeing how much he'd mourned her, that's why she'd tried to reach him, spoken to him on that string. They were always meant to be. They filed for divorce after six years. Well, nothing's certain. Doesn't make me feel any better. I'm... I'm sorry. It was such a long time ago. Did I give you what you needed? Kodichek Research never knew what they stumbled onto. A machine that can bridge the dimensions. Or bring back the dead. I can't tell the company how to rebuild it. I don't know how it worked. You've told us it's possible. And given us some hints. Will that be enough? Our time was up several minutes ago. And who knows what else is in my head? I can feel it fading now your machine's been turned off. I can't remember what Archie looked like. Concentrate. How did he make you feel? I wanted to shut the feeling away. Didn't want to talk about him. That's what I told Jamie. And, and what was the other man's name? The Doctor. That's funny. I met a man called the Doctor a long time ago. It was on the wheel. Have I told you that before? It doesn't matter. The company can see your value and that you need my help. Whatever's been done to you, I'm going to help you remember. <laughs> what? But I remember everything. And I remember nothing. That's right. I promise you, Zoe. Now we'll find out why. Hello, I'm David Richardson. I'm the producer of The Companion Chronicles, and I'm here with Wendy Padbury, who plays Zoe. Hello. And Charlie Hayes, who plays... Jen. Hello. And Lisa Bauman, who directed this. Uh, good afternoon. 
It's the continuing story of Zoe and her memory. Oh, <laughs> How's your memory, Wendy? <laughs> well, <laughs> so I've got a, I've got a quiz here, a detailed quiz of your time in Doctor Who. Oh, no, I haven't, I haven't really. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't do that to you. Don't look so worried. Not after three days in here. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I mean, do you remember your time in the show? Well, I mean, how, yeah. how, how does it stay with you? Uh, it, it's it's interesting that I remember more obviously from having gone to you know meet fans and things who of course rem- it's fresh to them. Um, so yes, I and also when I'm with other Doctor Who girls and boys like Fraser or Debbie or any, and we all feed off each other, and then suddenly you think, oh yes, I remember that, which is something you know, that's how it works. So. I would lie. I would be lying if I said that I remembered every week and every, you know, of it, forty-four years ago or whatever it was. But on the whole, the the thing as a whole, yes. I mean, it was the best job I ever had. Yeah. And in a way, why? Well, because well, it was a year out of your life. I mean, it wasn't that huge amount of time. You were doing other things, and I was doing other things. Well, I did before and after. But and of course, I was a young actress, so part yeah. of the it was all part of the the learning process at the time, yeah. And does coming back to do these bring it back in a way? Well, it does, because, uh, um, you know, playing Zoe again, I mean, it's much easier to play Zoe with my voice as it is now, because I was quite squeaky when I was <laughs> young. She, she was quite a squeaky girl. Um, so that proves a bit tricky sometimes. But, um, yeah, no, no, it's good. And I love this, you know, I've done one of these... This is the second one of this. Third, actually. Is it the third? Third, yeah, and we've got another one to do. Oh, yeah, but, but I love the, you know, poor old Zoe, I remember everything, I remember nothing yeah. syndrome. Yeah. You know, that's <laughs> what this is. That's what, yeah, that's what I really like, actually. It's yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and you've got your daughter here as well. Oh, I the continuing <laughs> role. You've got a continuing role now, Charlie, <laughs> as Jen. Yeah. What are you making of her? What, what do you like about her? Well... On a sort of <laughs> on a less professional and more personal note, it's always nice to be, um, you know, officially cast in a role whereby I can sort of technically backchat my mother. Um, so it's that, <laughs> I don't think it's I've like ever been. It's like having Fraser back, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> boss me around a bit. I don't know. Oh. Um, so it's yeah, it's quite fun to be um, quite quite stern, but it's um, it's great, you know, it's. Um, yeah, it's a good opportunity to uh, pretend that I'm far more intelligent than I actually am and talk about subjects that I clearly have no idea about. And uh, hopefully, if I've done my job properly, make it sound convincing. So I can't make a judgment on that one. And Simon Guerrier really is using his O-level in this oh. one, isn't he? Oh, he really is. He's just oh showing off. He is. Really, he is. He does a, every, every script every now, script. He, got, he gets a bit of his O-level in. <laughs> And, and Charlie, is it is it fun acting with your mum? To take your headphones off. Oh, I will. It's brilliant. Um, I I may be repeating myself from a from a former uh, one of these that we've done, but um, I think the first one that I did, I quite appallingly remembered being in being very nervous about uh, about recording one of these with mum, and then sort of watching her doing it and listening listening to her doing it and thinking, 
oh my god she's really good I mean obviously <laughs> she got cast and stuff and obviously had an amazing career as an actress but I, I was like oh I see oh I see she's Oh, she's actually good, not just like, <laughs> oh, people are right. So it was quite kind of, I'm quite impressed that um, oh, she thanks, knows darling. what, <laughs> the most backhanded compliment you've ever had. So it's brilliant. And I mean, I love doing this sort of work and uh, uh, and often find myself going into it sort of quite blindly, I think, and um, hoping that I kind of get the feel of it a- along the way. So it's kind of, it's great to be guided Um and there's nothing like taking your mum along to work with you. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of work do you do before coming in, Wendy? How do you prep on something like this? Um, I just reread, and it was something like this script at Simon's, which is is quite dense for for Zoe. Um, try and, like Charlie just said, I'm talking about things of which I have no knowledge, and so I, I, it's literally trying to understand exactly what it is I'm saying and trying to be able to get that over. I mean, I I know I have to do the doctor's voice and Jamie's voice, and I'm not really very good at that. Oh, and you I are. Was with, you I are. Was with, you honestly are. I was with Fraser yesterday, and I tell you, he is a brilliant... He does a brilliant doctor. Yeah, but I think he really gets better and better. But great. So those are tricky, but I just, pra- you know, I just mm-hmm. keep reading, keep reading. And the funny thing is, Fraser and I were talking about this yesterday and we both agreed that you can read your script at home and you you can do it as many times as you like. And the minute you get into the studio and it's up there in front of you and you open your mouth and you've got your headphones on, it all sort of disappears and it all sounds as though and all looks as though you've never looked at it before. It kind of turns into ants doesn't, on the page, doesn't it? Does, it doesn't it does. doesn't sound a bit like that. Mm. I could almost, almost with you, I almost feel we could sort of press record and go and have a cup of tea in there and then come back at the end <laughs> I'll of I'll still it. keep... Is that, is that not how you, <laughs> you, you could You could go through the whole thing, I think. Do you know, that's not a bad idea. I think we should try that next time. And Lisa, Lisa, um, would you agree? Wendy just flies with it, doesn't yeah, she? Yeah, I mean, as Wendy said, you know, today's was was a dense script. It had a lot of technical information. It had some emotional inf- it, it, and having to flip between the two. But we still finished what I would consider early. And what what did you want to find in this play? What were your it ones? is. I mean, it's a progression, isn't it? The, the the whole of this this story arc, if you want to put it, put it this way. And what what I find interesting is actually the development of the relationship between uh, Zoe and Jen is the fact that Jen isn't the archetypal uh, ballsy interrogator who's a baddie. You know, she reveals a little bit more of herself in this. And in order to coax the information out of Zoe, not only are they using horrible things, you know, to open things up, but she's she's not being unsympathetic. And I think had it stayed the same relationship, you know, with the interrogator and the prisoner, it would have been quite dull. But I think there is a, a proper progression in here. And uh, I think they work together very well. I think it's uh, it's good. It's moving on. You like mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And what about in terms of the production itself, the world, what are you going to look for? Well, I mean, obviously, there's there's always exciting things like creating interesting buzzes from exciting big computers that electrocute people. You know, um, I mean, in, t- in terms of creating, again, there is that f- feeling. There's that. It's it's less so, I think, in this particular script of conjuring up an era. You know, and we are in in the world of the '60s, but it, there is no specific reference to that. It is just making it believable. Uh, it, it's as simple as that and, and trying to draw people in so that they're so consumed by the world that they're not worrying about, you know, 
whether the aliens' voices are right or whether the guard behind the door said ten minutes convincingly. Oh, ow. <laughs> ow. <laughs> I spent years at Rada for that line. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, damn, gave it away. Uh, but it, it, it is, I mean, obviously you've got to keep it consistent as well with the previous episodes, so there's got to be a certain amount of continuity. I must go back and listen to that, make sure we suddenly don't have a completely different feel to it, because there has to be a continuation to that. Mm. Well, perhaps we should come back and do another. Do you think so? What Let's a good idea. Get your diaries out. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, Thank Ariel. you. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, The Companion Chronicles, Project Nirvana. I don't need to remind you both how dangerous this is, but success is crucial. I glanced over at the Doctor who was standing in shadow at the console. I would ask which alien civilization your former employers plundered for this particular innovation. This was it. There was no fear, no anticipation. Same as always, just another mission. Private Morgan to Captain Aristides, please respond. That's reckless, you could have been killed. Can't get rid of me that easily. Now what? Don't worry, Lysandra. We'll find a way to stop this somehow. <laughs> somehow? You mean the Time Lord hasn't got Plan B tucked up his sleeve? How disappointing. A clock flashed on my visor, counting down from ten. On my mark. Three, two, one, ma! Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com. not exactly a boy. Boyish. He was like me, an innocent. I think we recognised that in each other at the graveside. I remembered. And look, Patrice Johnson, 1968 to 2022, buried where you said. There's no way you could have known that unless you had been there. I just remembered the smell. Your implicit memory. 
Children respond to things that make them feel scared or safe before they develop language and can describe what they're feeling. It's a survival trait. We recognize danger or safety before we articulate words. It's my ability to describe the past that's gone, but the way it made me feel is still there. So we use that to get round whatever it is blocking your recall. You know this boy. Do you remember his name? Uh, Archie. You're not reading from my screen. It's not on your screen. There's no way I could have known. Archie William Kane, born 24th of June, 1996. It's surprising how much you can find if you've got the birth date. Tax and medical records. A lot of something they used to call social media, you don't want to know. And then the coroner's report. Sorry. I said, you go back in time and everyone's already dead. Can you describe him? Oh, I didn't know him long. Look, sorry, I don't think that aspirin made any difference. I'm having trouble thinking. That's because we're breaking through. What did Archie look like? He was... He was... Tall. I know everyone's tall to me, but even I can tell. His arms and legs are such a long way from his brain, it's like they're a beat behind whatever he wants them to do. His suit doesn't fit him. The other people at the graveside look smart and sombre. He looks like a nervous child in someone else's clothes. His black jacket is cut too broadly for his chest, and the sleeves don't reach to the cuffs of his shirt. I notice when he bends his arms. I don't think that's going to be any help to you. But you spoke to him. Not at the graveside, but later, that afternoon, because the doctor asked me. The wake was in a public house, a sort of dining hall, but just for alcoholic drinks. Yes, I know, that period of history is almost in reach, almost in living memory, and yet another world. We mingled, listening to other people's stories of the girl who died. Meg was good at football. Meg loved to dance, but had no sense of rhythm. The time she dyed her hair green. The doctor sidled up to a red-faced man. The man looked witheringly at the doctor's scruffy frock coat and yellow Wellington boots. But the doctor told him that he'd remember Meg playing football, or how she loved to dance. The red-faced man laughed. Yes, that was Meg. And told us his own story about her. Jamie was soon doing the same, asking the pretty girls if they'd seen Meg with green hair. We gathered details, her taste in music, politics, men, and slowly built up a portrait. We almost felt we'd known her. But it wasn't what we were after. It wasn't about her work. Then the doctor directed me to Archie. He stood slightly out of the group that included Meg's mother and stepdad, part of a group yet alone. I made my way over, not knowing where to start. Hi, he said. You were at the... He shrugged, embarrassed. Well, obviously. But, but I saw you. He was flirting badly and it felt wrong, because we were at a wake and because I could take advantage. I asked him how he knew Meg, said he didn't look like a scientist. He admitted with a laugh that he could barely work his email. He couldn't tell me what her job had been, something in physics, since that had been her degree. 
Her mum had told him Meg had begun a doctorate, but her job left her little time. When I tried to press him on where she'd worked, Archie's whole body sagged. We kind of lost touch, he told me. When she went to college, she had different friends who could talk about maths. He told me about growing up next door to this brilliant girl who could thrash him at computer games she'd never played before. I didn't need him to tell me how hard it had been, as they'd got older and she'd slipped from his reach. He tried to ask how I'd known Meg, but I changed the subject, asked him what he did. When he talked about himself, he was funny, entertaining. I was 16 and he treated me like an equal, not a child prodigy or a clever machine. Then Jamie was there, checking I was okay, always the big brother. Though that's not how Archie read it. He mumbled something about getting Meg's mum a drink and then hurried away. Now, hey, said Jamie, did that big yin give you any trouble? I reminded Jamie a little hotly that I could take care of myself. We went to find the doctor. Oh, and that was that. I thought I'd never see Archie again. You liked him? I felt sorry for him. But he wasn't put off by a woman being smart. That's not unusual. If you've spent your whole life in the company, even then, are you involved? None of your business. Then no. The company prefers it that way. I'm not going to rise to that. No. I'll throw it back. You could have gone after Archie, but you were working for the doctor. If I'd wanted to go after Archie, they'd have let me. You didn't want to? I... I thought what we were doing was more important. Because of how Meg died? We didn't know how she died. An accident at her work, which involved high-level physics. But the more no one would tell us what she'd been working on, the more promising it seemed as a lead. Something had sent the TARDIS out of control, and within a few kilometres of where we'd landed. I remember the controls going crazy. I remember the doctor struggling with the levers, bringing us in to materialise. I was inside the TARDIS. A huge white room with circles indented in the walls. A tabletop of controls, the time rotor rising and falling. What? I'm not sure that's right. The footage from the wheel... The TARDIS was a kind of booth. Barely room for the three of you. The footage doesn't show me leaving with Jamie and the Doctor. No, but I've watched it again. There's something odd about the way you watch the TARDIS disappear. Like, just for a moment, you know you've forgotten something. You're right. Just for a moment, after they'd gone. I remember not remembering. Let's focus on the story. Meg's death seemed the most promising lead on what had affected the TARDIS. What had the Doctor found out? Nothing as such. But he'd met some of Meg's colleagues and casually let slip some science he probably shouldn't have. Hints of things a little ahead of that time. He got their attention. He could charm practically anyone. They invited him and his research team, that was me and Jamie, to visit them the next morning. At Cody Check Research. They'd show us where Meg had been working. Cody Check. 
And what did you find out? You're getting ahead of the story. You're right. I can remember because of how it made me feel. Why? What happened next? Then we were attacked. sent me to my death. I hoped you were going to help me. What's that? Aspirin. Water. Oh, thank you. Any better? It's not a migraine. My head is all full of images and noise, people I don't even know. We punched a hole in whatever's keeping back your memories. And now they're flooding out. But it's all random moments, feelings, beings made of crystal. Time I met the Daleks. With time, you'll build a narrative out of the pieces. Like putting together a jigsaw. <laughs> if I lived that long. I've made a formal disclosure of your allegations. The evidence is with the senior court. You think they'll look at it? They're required to make an assessment. I won't lie to you. They're not likely to find in your favor. I see. They threatened you, or your children. The company isn't like that. Me for a moment. The elite programmers torture, stealing the memories of our brightest children. They did that to me, to thousands of others. It's still going on. So why aren't thousands queuing to testify? I must be the only one to break my conditioning. Because of what's been done to my brain. The scans show nothing abnormal. There's nothing physically wrong. You mean this is all in my head? We simply don't know. You've made your case. While your claims are investigated, we can pursue our other line of inquiry. That I travelled in time. You don't deny it. I don't believe I did. Yet the images I see... You've told us about two occasions when you were back in time. I made up some stories because you threatened me. Yet, we can back up what you told us with evidence. Not enough to convince your shareholders to let me live. They still have reasonable doubts. And their hands are tied by the charges against you. Sedition, extortion, threats to personnel. They invented those charges to make me tell them my secrets. I don't know any secrets. I don't remember. You don't need to remember everything. Just something. One thing that I can use to stay your... To give us some more time. Anything of value. Like how the doctor's TARDIS worked. You remember that? I never saw inside. I didn't travel with him. I only met him once, and that's all on record. I think I might have something. A thread. Like before, 
It's not conclusive, but implies that you've been back in time. We can use it to tease out your memories. The company won't accept it as proof. If you saw what I think you saw, we've got something they'll find of interest. What? You're not going to tell me. I'll prompt you. But we have to make certain you're not just telling me what I want to hear. It won't be easy. And you might not have seen anything anyway. But what have you got to lose? If you're right and I did travel in time, someone stole that from me. So I've lost everything already. I've got an image here of a man you might have met. You recognize him? What do you remember? A smell. Like a spice at the back of my throat. Hold on to that sensation. It's a smell of rain. Fat, swollen droplets smashed down on the grass, exploding pungent odour back into the air. A grassy stink, overpowering. My eyes are sore and itchy. I must be allergic to nature. Being outside is a new experience. I've spent my whole life cooped up in spaceships and space stations, where the air and temperature, and even the smells, are dictated by central control. Everything was prescribed. Our beige uniforms matched the uniform beige of the corridors. That regulation, stricture, all my life. And then I'm standing here. It's a green and grey day in the graveyard. Cloud stretches to the horizon like static on a screen. Beside me, Jamie can't keep still, shifting his weight from foot to foot. He never liked being still, but he also feels awkward. We're intruding on other people's grief. I want to reach out, take his hand. But the doctor has his arm round me, holding me tight under his old black umbrella. Rain drums on the fabric over our heads. He doesn't know it's the stink of the grass making my eyes itch. He thinks I'm crying for the girl being put into the ground. Perhaps I am. She was older than me. As I stand there, 24 seems ancient. Yet Jamie and I don't look out of place among her friends. No one challenges us about how we knew her. They're too caught up in the awful wrongness of parents burying a child. She's drawn a large crowd, perhaps a hundred people. Her family try to blank out the onlookers as they stand by the open wound in the ground. The doctor, Jamie and I are quite a way back amid the rain-slick marble gravestones. The one right next to me, Patrice Johnson, 1968 to 2022, in neatly serifed gold. I watch the mourners, alive in front of me, and wonder how many will be dead by my own time, how many old and infirm. Travel back in time, and everyone you meet is already dead. Travel forward, and it's the people of your own time, everyone you ever knew or loved. I've just started travelling with the Doctor, and it seems so desperately unfair. All of time and space to explore, but our lives are only fleeting. And then, when I'm feeling so wretched, so inside out, I see the boy on the far side of the grave. He sees me looking, and we're at a funeral. But he smiles. 
The doctor was keen we got away. He didn't want the scientists pressing him for more secrets. And the longer we stayed with Meg's friends and family, the more chance we'd make a mistake and reveal we'd never met her. The doctor put up his umbrella and he and I walked arm in arm. Jamie said he didn't mind the rain. He'd grown up in the Highlands. That was just him being brave. We'd get back to the TARDIS, the doctor said, and get an early night before our visit to Meg's work. I couldn't believe he would sleep. He admitted he planned to carry out some tests. No, he didn't need my help. Bickering about bedtime, we made our way through the rain. And that's when the creatures stepped out from the darkness. They were short and stocky, no taller than me, swaying unsteadily as they lumbered towards us. Their bodies were thick with tightly packed muscle. Their faces were childlike, eyes wide and unblinking. They had comical, sticky-out ears. Hello, said the doctor warmly. I'm sorry about Earth's gravity. You get used to it in time. The nearest creature raised its thick arms out towards him. Its hands started to glow with searing purple-blue light. Rain hissed and steamed as it touched the creature's flesh. The light grew, spreading up its arms. The creature's whole body was glowing. Then I was plunging sideways. The doctor had shut me out of the way of the creatures. And as I fell back, I just had time to see the creature grab him. There was an almighty explosion. I think we all thought it, Jamie, the doctor and me, that perhaps Archie had dreamt it. He so wanted to hear Meg's voice again that he thought he had. But then he'd known about the creatures. He said he was going to Meg's work to pick up her things for her mum, who couldn't face coming herself. Then he could ask what Meg had been working on. Maybe see the machine where she'd died. The doctor shook his head. But, uh, what if the people she worked with are involved? They've not exactly volunteered details so far. So we devised a plan. The doctor tricked the receptionist into letting slip which part of the building Meg had died in. He made it seem like we already knew. While he and Jamie made small talk about the tragedy, Archie and I slipped away. Testing room four was the size of a landing bay. A desk ran along the side of one wall with sockets for power and computers and a sink at one end. In the centre of the room was a large cube of a machine, taller even than Archie. I saw him shiver. The room was cold, but as we made our way over to the machine, I saw what had disturbed him. An irregular mark on the concrete floor, where something had burned up. Closer, we could see the machine wasn't a cube, but two separate cuboids with a space between them wide enough for a person to walk down. Each cuboid was wrapped around with tightly coiled wire, a bit like a parcel. LEDs winked from a panel on one side, but there were no controls. How did anyone work it? Then Archie stepped between the two halves. Archie, get out of there! 
but Archie couldn't move. He stood paralyzed as the two sides of the machine began to glow with purple-blue light. I searched in vain for the controls to shut it down. Then the creature started to materialize out of the air. Two of them, short and stocky, with huge, imploring eyes. They reached out to Archie, and I felt a cold prickling on the back of my neck. In horror, I turned to find another two creatures stood right behind me. They reached out their fleshy arms. I lay on my back, staring up at Jamie. His mouth was moving, but I couldn't hear a thing. He helped me sit up, and once I saw that I was sitting on the rain-slick concrete walkway, I felt the cold and wet. It wasn't just the rain. Something else was falling. Scraps of pale white yellow substance, a bit like scrambled egg. As my senses came back to me, I caught the gingery stench. Those things just exploded, I heard Jamie say. But, I said, my mouth trembling as I dared to ask, what about the doctor? Aye, he had quite a shock. I turned. The doctor sat further along the walkway. His thick, dark hair all stood up on end. In one hand, he held the bare skeleton of his umbrella, as if it might still keep off the rain. What did you do with yon beasties? Jamie asked him. The doctor looked quickly around, as if the creatures might be behind him. Then he looked up at the falling scraps of scrambled egg. They fell with the rain, to plop lightly on the ground beside his yellow Wellington boots. And there was a sudden light in his eyes. It uh, must be my Wellingtons. They insulated me from whatever that power was, shorted out the circuit. Your boots made them explode said Jamie, amazed and a bit impressed. No, they didn't explode. This stuff... The doctor fluttered his fingers at the falling scrambled egg. The distinctive whiff of ginger. It's residue from the space-time vortex. The TARDIS sometimes gets clogged with it. Makes a terrible mess. So where did they go? Back wherever they came from. He ran a hand through his hair and stopped in horror as he felt it sticking up on end. He tried to smooth it down with both hands, but it made no difference. Oh, crumbs. Jamie, Zoe, we should get back to the TARDIS. We came in out of the rain and... and... Sorry, I can't... I want to tell you it was a huge white room with a tabletop of controls, but inside that narrow booth the police box. Oh, I know that's not right. It can't be. I can feel the block deep in my head. A knot the size of a data strip. And it's burning. The scans haven't shown anything. We could scan while I'm remembering. You feed me the evidence. We see what I recall and what flares up in my head. I could put in a request. But Zoe, you're a prisoner. An experiment costs time and resources. Company wants to know what's in my head. They know what's in your head. It's whether we can extract anything of value before they send you to... We don't have much time. 
Are you trying to save my life or make the most of me while you can? I want to help you. This is the only thing that might change your sentence. Might. Have you seen an atomization? Why would I? Some people are curious. They tell you it's painless, humane. Seven-eighths of a second, and then nothing left. They flick a switch, and before you can hear it click, you're already gone. They don't say what it does to the prisoners. The night before, then in the morning. The way they lose control. I think it's the thoroughness. The complete obliteration. They don't just kill you. They scrub you out completely. You asked if I'd seen it. I think I remember a trial. Men who'd done terrible things. I can't remember what or where. Like it happened in the clouds. But I remember the horror of it. Watching as they were erased. Taken out of time as though they'd never existed. Oh, my head. We have to continue or you'll be erased. Zoe, please. You went back to the TARDIS. And... And... Oh, I'm sorry. I just see the big white room. When did you next see Archie? Oh, the next morning, on the way to Meg's work. The doctor had no money to pay for the bus, so we stood on the step and argued with the driver. And then Archie appeared from one of the seats and paid for us by swiping a plastic card three times against a reader. As we took our seats, I felt the eyes of the other passengers judging us for our ignorance. I hated not knowing how to do things. I was sulking anyway, because of the silly smart clothes the doctor had insisted we wear. Jamie looked ridiculous in an old-fashioned suit. My shoes were boring and clumsy. By the time the bus left the town and headed out into the green and grey countryside, we were the only passengers left. It was mid-morning. Anyone going to work was already there. Archie had not said a word since I'd sat next to him. The doctor spoke to him warmly. We've um, been invited to see Meg's laboratory. You see, we're scientists ourselves. Uh, but you're not a scientist, are you? Archie shook his head. He told us he struggled with anything like that. It might as well be witchcraft. Jamie's eyes lit up. Aye, that's what I just... But the doctor shushed him. He turned back to Archie. So, uh, what are you heading there for? Archie didn't know where to start. He looked so desolate and broken. You won't believe me, he said. But you hope Meg's colleagues can explain. Archie nodded. It's ridiculous, he said. But the doctor had such a kindly way about him, that craggy, lined face, those incredible eyes, that Archie told us everything about the previous night. After the wake, he walked back to his parents' house. He was staying in his old room. He'd gone up the stairs, down the landing, and stopped in his tracks. The curtains weren't drawn in his room. Without the light on, he could see out of the window, across the narrow backyard, to the next house, and the window of Meg's old bedroom. But the room was empty. Meg had long since moved out, even before she'd died. 
Between their windows stretched a sagging old bit of string. Archie moved closer. The string still led from her window to his. Smiling sadly, he moved the curtain out of the way. The string poked through a small hole in the wall, drilled for the purpose. Hanging from the end of the string was a yoghurt pot. They'd never got their telephone to work. They'd never got to play spies. But they'd not taken it down because Meg had refused to give in. She'd been so determined to find the answer, he realised with a pang, that she'd borrowed a school textbook on physics and everything had changed. This line between them, the connection they'd made, it was what had taken her from him. And then he heard her voice. It was her. It was Meg. Archie looked up and round, through the window and across the yard. There were no lights on in Meg's bedroom. His eyes had adapted to the dark. He could see into her room. And there was no one there. And yet, her voice, ghostly in the darkness, a plastic echo from the yoghurt pot receiver. He heard her whisper as he bent his head down to the yoghurt pot. You're joking. Meg came back as a ghost. She told Archie there was no such thing. She said it was something to do with her work. She'd been killed while working on a new machine. And now, whatever she was, she could just about control the string between their windows. She knew how the telephone worked. It was all about getting the string to relay vibrations. Archie had laughed. Meg had always said she'd work it out. Perhaps that was why he could hear her now. That stubborn insistence on solving a mystery. Like why the creatures had killed her. The creatures who zapped the doctor, they zapped Meg as well. But she'd not been wearing Wellington boots. What was Meg working on when she died? That's what Archie wanted to know. But whatever she was doing to speak to him, it was too much for the old string. It snapped. He lost the connection. 